Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 2 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Philippe Petit, The Man on Wire. Now let's continue with our story about Philippe Petit. From his perch on the other side, Jean-Louis Blondeau can see Philippe Petit step onto the cable they have spent all night fastening between the twin towers. At first, the aerialist is cautious, but Blondeau quickly discerns a transformation. I saw his face changing. He was very tense, and all of a sudden there was something like a relief in him. And from that moment, I thought, that's it. He's secure. Wow. On the street below, Annie Alex was much more effusive. I saw Philippe up there. It was extraordinary. It was so, so beautiful. It was like he was walking on a cloud. Petit himself later claimed that even from his first moments on the wire, once he was able to establish the unique temperament of this particular connection, he was not tense or even frightened. He was euphoric. Still, he sensed a great variability in the cable, the center portion much slacker than the areas near the secured Cavaletti. Petit adjusted his footwork as he approached the middle of the gap between the two buildings and continued forward easily. At the second Cavaletti, he began what he calls his performance. He rested the balancing pole on his right leg and lifted his right hand to his brow. Down below, Annie Alex, watching through binoculars, announced to the rapidly enlarging crowd that Petit is saluting. From there, it is only a few more feet to the North Tower, where he can see Jean-Louis photographing him. And as he takes the final steps and walks safely onto the roof and puts his pole on the ground, the once skeptical Alan fully embraced him with both joy and astonishment. Petit disengaged calmly and began a quick examination and assessment of the wire and its clamps and the secondary Cavaletti. From a seated position on the wire, he stands and then begins walking again. Halfway across, he becomes aware of the ever-increasing commotion he is causing on the streets below and sits down, observing the crowd. It is like a disorganized anthill, sirens coming from everywhere as authority slowly reacted to this outrageous intrusion. And then Petit lay completely with his back on the wire and gazed directly up into the sky. While he lay gently on the cable, a solitary seagull circled close by, perhaps noticing this utterly unnatural situation, and then flew away. Prompted by the bird's exit, Petit got up and continued, the gull replaced by a large jet plane that flew only a few thousand feet above the building. Below, Jim Moore is stunned by this tableau. Beyond anything you could ever imagine, it was just mind-boggling. The awe of the event and the overwhelming largeness and scale of the situation took my mind into a place where I wasn't really that concerned about him. It was magical. 
it was just profound. Inevitably, law enforcement in the person of both New York City and Port Authority police began to swarm the roof to determine exactly what was transpiring. Inevitably, they decided that what was happening was not so profound. Petit's reaction to this presence only exacerbated their irritation. As they yelled at him to leave the wire and get back on the roof, he quickly darted back and forth several times, coming within a few feet of a bunch of cops ready to grab him and then heading quickly in the other direction. Still, the police could not repress their incredulity over Petit's activity and preparation. Sergeant Charles Daniels of the Port Authority later summed up his own reaction to the event. Officer Myers and I observed the tightrope dancer, you couldn't call him a walker, approximately halfway between the two towers. Upon seeing us, he started to smile and laugh. When he got to the building, we told him to get off of the high wire, but instead he ran back out into the middle. Everybody was spellbound in the watching of it. When we observed that he wasn't about to come off because he was enjoying it so much, we mentioned to his associate that if he did not come in, we would have a helicopter pluck him off the wire, at which time the associate spoke to him in French, being that he is a Frenchman, and told him what we intended to do. I personally figured that I was watching something that somebody else would never see again in the world. I thought it was once in a lifetime. There is no record as to whether Dustin Hoffman is among this fortunate few. After 45 minutes and eight passes on the cable, Petit finally decided to come down. The breeze was stiffening, rain was imminent, and the police were now also threatening to loosen the Cavaletti. Upon descending onto the roof, Philippe was immediately arrested and handcuffed, as was Jean-Francois. While being read his Miranda rights, Petit tried to explain that he needed to loosen the cable because if law enforcement or the construction workers merely tried to cut it, the massive tension would cause a whiplash and send fragments of steel cable everywhere, perhaps fatally, especially to the onlookers below. Grudgingly, Petit is allowed to loosen his creation, and when he is satisfied, the police then drag him and Hekel to the basement precinct office. They treat him roughly, pushing him down the stairs, Petit unable to break his fall. With a thud, he goes flying a few times into the walls of the stairwell, a process he claimed later that was far more dangerous than the walk itself. As they pass any workers on the way down, Petit is cheered and applauded, a reaction that only further irritates the arresting officers. In the vicinity of the loading dock, Philippe sees Allen arguing with other policemen as he attempted to convince them that he is merely a journalist bystander and has nothing to do with the plot. The police let him go, and as he passes near Petit, he does not acknowledge him. Allen will spend the rest of the day attempting to peddle his illicitly taken photos to the local police and wire services, an effort that is successful. After Philippe and Jean-Francois are booked and fingerprinted, they are handcuffed to chairs while paperwork is composed that specifically defines the charges of criminal trespass and disorderly conduct. In the details of the complaint, the headline reads, Man on Wire. It only takes Petit a few minutes to charm most of his captors by balancing a policeman's hat on his nose and flipping it onto his head repeatedly. It is ultimately decided that both men are to be conveyed to a downtown hospital where Philippe is to be given a psychiatric examination. The doctor in charge quickly pronounces him sane. He is taken back to a precinct house where he is told that his sister is on the phone, 
a ruse to allow Annie to attempt to speak with him. Instead of high praise, he gets an earful, including the news that Jean-Louis' film is non-existent, Alan has sold his pictures, and the atmosphere at home is anything but joyous. The police are now convivial, even asking for autographs and allowing press to shout questions and photograph him, but not accommodating enough to forego the inevitable transport to the notorious central lockup in Manhattan, known as the Tombs. For two hours, they huddle among the 50 or so drunks and petty criminals that are languishing in this filthy, smelly cage. Finally, they are taken to a smaller holding cell where Petit is confronted by a man who is actually Richard Q., Manhattan's district attorney. Word has clearly circulated about Petit's remarkable feat as Q personally offers to drop the charges if Philippe will agree to perform a charity show for children in Central Park. An hour later, in front of a judge, the deal is made official. Ultimately, this little show will turn into a October 29th high-wire walk across Central Park's Turtle Pond in front of 5,000 spectators. Both Jean-Francois and Philippe are released and their cuffs removed. They are free to go. However, Jean-Francois was eventually officially deported. On the steps of the courthouse, Philippe is accosted by numerous press and makes eye contact with a comely female who is mutually interested. Improvising quickly, he tells Jean-Francois to head back to the apartment and to tell especially Annie and Jean-Louis that he has agreed to one more radio interview and that he will return shortly. Then he bolts with the girl who is named Jackie back to her apartment. There, Jackie and Philippe share in what the aerialist later described as an explosion of passions. Afterwards, he did participate in a radio interview, the station providing a limousine that they comp him all night. Finally, he returns to the apartment. His associates, especially Annie and Jean-Louis, still miffed. He piles everyone into the limo in an attempt to change the mood, and over dinner at a restaurant, Jean-Louis explained what transpired on his side of the tower. It was actually Alan's idea to wait until nightfall to go to the roof, but they kept hearing what they thought was security in the area, and it was not until about 11 p.m. that they actually made it. Things were so hectic that he had no chance to test the movie camera, and he was determined to get some still photos first. He realized that once he saw cops on the South Tower, that they would eventually make it to the roof of the North Tower. He hid, evaded police, and then escaped down the stairwell, never obtaining any movie footage. He acknowledged that right before the attempt, he was exhausted and could tell from Philippe's voice on the intercom that he was also utterly wrung out. And with the wire in such bad shape, Jean-Louis was initially terrified that Philippe would never make it. The group all shared stories from the wild day, at least for the moment united in their camaraderie, until they literally closed the restaurant in the early morning hours. Although Richard Nixon's inevitable resignation dominated the front pages of New York's August 8th newspapers, Petit was featured in every paper and newscast in the city, a photo and story on page 20 of the New York Times, the picture from the Associated Press and sold by Allen. The aerialist only got a few hours of sleep before his apartment phone began ringing off of the hook. Barely understanding many of the pitches, requests, and business propositions, Philippe wrote information on small pieces of paper and piled one on top of the other. The next day, he enlisted Jim Moore to help him deal with the chaos. He rejected most of the inquiries immediately, including The Tonight Show. 
as he does not watch television and dislikes the concept of talk shows that only allow a minimal discussion with each guest. Most endorsement deals involved consumer products he considers tacky or commercials a medium which he especially despises. He will allow Jim to schedule two meetings a day, just enough to receive free lunch and dinner out of the interaction, but tea adroit enough to wait until dessert is concluded to reject the offer under discussion. Only Annie remains with him in New York. Jean-Louis and Jean-Francois have already flown home. Hekel's excited anticipation over potential future coups, dampened by Jean-Louis's admonition that he will never work with Petit again, and he believes that their friendship is irrevocably broken. Annie Alex also begins to realize that Petit's life was taking on a whole new trajectory and that she will not be part of that journey. Within weeks, she also returns to France, describing the situation in an especially French conceit. There was a love story, but it was clear that Philippe had gone through an incredible moment in his life, and he was starting something else, a new life. Strangely, I felt the same way. Our relationship was meant to end here, and it was beautiful that way. While some close relationships were ending, the Port Authority of New York eventually realized what a valuable asset Petit and his feet were. They first invited him to a meeting of executives to explain exactly how he evaded security and set up his wire. They induced him to show up by issuing a lifetime pass to the observation deck of the World Trade Center. After the meeting, he autographed and dated the spot where he began his walk from the roof of the South Tower. They also returned every piece of equipment and parts used to install the cable, all neatly labeled and cataloged and delivered personally to Philippe's apartment. Strangely, Petit declined any commercial endorsements of any kind and continued his life much as before, performing his acrobatics and quasi-wire walking in New York's Washington and Sheridan squares. National sport in America seems to be for performers to do commercials, and probably there's nothing wrong with that, except me, it's against the blood that is running in my veins. I cannot get on television and get millions of dollars to say that the reason I walk on the wire is because of the beer and so-and-so. Even if I love that beer, and even if they gave me that beer for the rest of my life for free, I would never do such a commercial. It's something I do not comprehend. But again, I am probably a fool, you know. Still broke, he moved into Jim Moore's downtown apartment. Philippe, a celebrity routinely recognized everywhere he went. Eventually, he did sign a contract to work with Ringling Brothers' Barnum & Bailey Circus and spent much of 1975 performing a 12-minute routine. Occasionally, to promote certain dates, Petit performed such feats as walking across the newly built Louisiana Superdome, a series of performances that were meant to bring attention to the circus's New Orleans shows. He traversed a 700-foot-long cable strung 200 feet above the ground. But Petit came to dislike the circus routine and the typical tendency of performers to frighten audiences by exaggerating the danger of their performance. He also would suffer the first and only fall of his career on January 7, 1975, falling 45 feet during a circus practice session, breaking several ribs and injuring some internal organs. Petit, however, does not consider it a fall as it did not happen during an actual performance. He recovered, finished his term with the circus, and went back to working by himself. In 1982, Petit had a child with an artist named Elaine Fasula. 
but the couple never married, and Petit actually lived in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where he was designated an official artist in residence, Elaine and his daughter living separately in a downtown Manhattan apartment. Tragically, in 1992, his daughter, named Cordia Gypsy, died suddenly at age nine from a cerebral hemorrhage. Continuing to shun any sort of commercial pursuit, Petit focused for decades on pursuing wire-walking spectaculars that besides the Superdome included crossing the Niagara River, as Charles Blondin did, captured in IMAX, at Lincoln Center to celebrate the reopening of the Statue of Liberty and to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, a walk between the Palais de Chaillot and the second level of the Eiffel Tower. His last major performance was on September 26, 2002, on The David Letterman Show, on a wire near the Letterman Television Studios, 14 stories high. A walk Petit began performing regularly in 1993. However, a walk across the Grand Canyon never did materialize, for various different reasons. Ultimately, he completed approximately 70 high-wire walks around the world. Once he stopped performing, Petit began writing books ranging from an account of his World Trade Center coup to his personal philosophy and even a book about tying knots. He also began spending time in another residence situated in the tiny upstate New York hamlet of Shokan near Woodstock, here with his longtime companion Kathy O'Donnell, who also serves as his business manager. He lives a rustic lifestyle, but still rehearses and performs in a barn-like structure he designed and built with tools only available through the 18th century. It was here that Petit was situated on September 11, 2001. Among his acquaintances at the time, it was well known that he had no television. So when the Twin Towers were attacked, he received a phone call from a neighbor I looked at the sky because I knew there was a plane involved, and it was a magnificent day, and I knew my intuition was this is not an airplane accident. It was something else. So I ran to my friends at the top of the hill, and I sat in front of the television like millions of other people, and I saw my towers being attacked and destroyed and taking with them thousands of lives. Petit clearly was quite sentimental about both his walk and the Twin Towers themselves, visiting the site frequently, including only a week before 9-11, but although asked many times about how he feels personally about the destruction of the buildings, he is completely unresponsive. How can I answer that question when on the other side of that event you have thousands of lives that were lost? You cannot compare losing a marvel of architecture and losing human lives. In 2008, the documentary film Man on Wire was released, a thrilling and engrossing rendition of the events leading up to Petit's World Trade Center coup. The film won an Academy Award, and Petit himself appeared at the award ceremony, balancing the Oscar on his chin to great applause. In 2015, Robert Zemeckis, of Forrest Gump fame, directed a dramatization of Philippe Petit's life leading up to the World Trade Center incident that included all of his associates played by actors. Entitled The Walk, it was supported by Petit, who enthusiastically served as an advisor during production, and photos from the premiere included appearances by both Annie Alex and Jean-Francois Haquel, who over time seemed to have deliberately shunned any attention. Jean-Louis Blondeau was less charitable, refusing to even attend the premiere and characterizing the film as an inaccurate dramatization. 
He maintained publicly that over time, Philippe Petit has attempted to focus attention completely on himself at the expense of other supporters like Blondeau. Unfortunately, today there seems to be no connection between the two men. A sad outcome for a former friendship and collaboration that can only be termed unique. From the moment he was arrested on the top of the South Tower and ever since, Philippe Petit has been asked why he attempted such a thing. He is always practically exasperated by the question, stating that there is no why. If I die, what a beautiful death to die in the exercise of your passion. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Philippe Petit. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book To Reach the Clouds by Philippe Petit. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>